0: The book of Galatians is a book that talks to us about Christian freedom, true Christian freedom. It shows us not how we advance or grow in the Christian life, primarily it is a hammer blow again and again and again on the Christian doctrine of how we are made acceptable before a Father. It's a doctrine that we call justification by faith alone. And like a jackhammer, it goes over and over and over and over and over. That idea again and again and again. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went out because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus... So that, we might bring, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seemed to be influential, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, please. Freedom is much easier to proclaim than it is to possess. Once upon a time when the mass of the English people were unfree, their Teutonic or their Welsh blood boiled hot and they longed for freedom that's how gilbert henry gilbert started his famous book robin hood in the 16th century or in the 19th century abraham lincoln you know january 1st, 1863 gives the emancipation proclamation millions of people were proclaimed free But not all were free, were they? It's much easier to proclaim freedom than it is to possess it. A hundred years after Lincoln, in the shadow of his memorial stood whom? Stood Martin Luther King Jr. on the March in Washington for Jobs and Freedom in August of 1963. And Martin Luther King Jr. gave this amazing 18-minute speech. And toward the end of it when he gets into his peroration about I have a dream, right? "I I have a dream and Mahalia Jackson cries out, Tell them about your dream, Martin. And it causes him to go off script. And that's the part of the speech, of course, most of us remember best. And he ends his speech with the hope of the African spiritual. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Freedom is much easier to proclaim than it is to possess. Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, Henry Gilbert, the great mass of English people in the 16th century, they longed for freedom. They had a dream. They had a dream. In Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul also has a dream, and Peter has a dream, and that dream is that the gospel is for those irrespective of where they're born, whether they're born in Jerusalem or Erie and Jaya, whether you're born in the Bronx or you're born in Brookside, irrespective of where you're born, irrespective of your culture. You are saved, not by externalities. You are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus. But Paul had a concern He says, I'm concerned that I had run in vain. Why was he concerned? He was concerned because people were turning this amazing dream, the dream of the gospel, into a nightmare. Because they were adding to the gospel things that you must do, externalities, in order to commend themselves to God. Now, here's the question for us this morning. Listen, all of us long for freedom. We long for it in an existential way, in a deeply personal kind of way. But for most of us who have grown up in the church, and I will assume, that's a huge assumption, but I will assume that that's most of us. Most of us who have grown up in the church, we have turned that dream into a nightmare. Because we have begun to believe, even if very subtly, that yes, we proclaim that it's by faith alone. What church would not say it's by faith alone? Every Protestant church says that. But subtly you begin to believe that you're really not part of that community unless you, what, Unless you add. Unless you add, you like this kind of music. Unless you add, you must worship this way. Unless you add, you have to like this kind of art. You have to eat this kind of food. You have to become part of this socioeconomic class. We turn the dream into a nightmare. And of course, it's obvious to everybody but the church. They look at the church from the outside in, and they're like, why do I want to become part of that? They look no different than the world does. Have you turned the dream of the gospel into a nightmare? That's the question that we're gonna talk about this morning. And the nightmare was that the people in the first century, false brothers, which means, if you didn't catch that, it means that they were Christians inside the church who thought they were Christians but weren't. False brothers added something to faith, to be saved, to commend them to God. And what they added was circumcision. You can actually read exactly what they added in Acts chapter 15. In verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, Acts 15, 1, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then again in verse 5 of Acts 15, it says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, what did they say? Here it is. It is necessary to circumcise them in order uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now listen, circumcision seems very remote. It's, it's, not, it's not, most of us, if we have little boys They are circumcised away from us. If you're like my wife, you can't possibly want to be near them when they do it. They circumcised them off in a very sterile place, but it did not used to be that way. They used to circumcise people as a way of showing that they are part of God's covenant community. But these Judaizers said, no, 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 no. That... What, Pete, what Paul preached to you, listen, he's a Johnny-come-lately. He didn't give you the whole story. In fact, Peter and James and John actually taught what we're about to say to you. You have to believe in Jesus by faith, and you also have to be circumcised. And, you know, a lot, a lot of us, a lot of us have verses in our homes, like they're you know, embroidered in something on our walls many of your homes I've been in, I see these verses, great verses from Joshua, As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Other verses that are favorites of your family. But one Greek scholar said that perhaps the most powerful verse in all of the New Testament was, and I've never seen this verse in any of your homes, verse three of chapter two, and even Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. That was an extremely powerful verse. Why? Because Paul goes to meet with Peter and James at least a decade, 14 years, it says. Maybe that's 14 years from his conversion. Maybe it's 14 years from the last time he went to Jerusalem. We don't exactly know. At least a decade. He goes back to Peter and James and John, and he brings a case study with him, a Greek named Titus, along with his right-hand man Barnabas, and he says, let's see what they do with Titus. And he tells Peter and John his gospel. And when they hear his gospel, the pillars, these false brothers had said, the pillars of the faith are saying you must add circumcision to be saved. And when Paul brings Titus as a case study along with him to hundreds of miles to Jerusalem, even Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. Signifying to the false brothers and to the Galatians that it is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves you, that commends you to God. Is your dream of freedom becoming a nightmare because you have subtly added works to earn God's merit and favor? These Judaizers in the ancient Near East were saying you must keep circumcision in the law of Moses. And Paul stood against them. And so you might read Galatians 2, and it might sound confusing. You might say, okay, well, great. Well, does that mean that Paul was saying that you didn't need to keep the law? That you didn't need to keep the law in order to commend yourself to God? That you could just go lie and cheat and steal and have sex with whoever you wanted to? It really wasn't that important. The important thing is you have faith in Jesus alone. No, no, no. That's not what Paul said. And we know that. Why? Because we know that the second half of most of his epistles are filled with taking us back to the law, but not as a way to commend yourself to God. Not as a way to get God to love you as though he could love you anymore by your obedience. They weren't saying, Paul wasn't saying that you can do whatever you want What these Pharisees, these Judaizers were saying was that Paul was saying that you must do certain aspects of the law to commend you to get God to accept you. And Paul says, no, that's from the pit of hell. What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? That's really what Galatians two focuses our affections, our attention on. What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? Paul says, this is another question altogether. We are not talking. We are not talking about ways to get God to love you. Paul says that the cultural aspects of the Old Testament law, that is the ceremonial aspects of the culture, of which there were zillions. There were zillions. You don't eat certain foods. You can't eat pork. You, you can't touch a dead body. You, you, you know, all sorts of stuff, bodily fluids, made you, what the Old Testament says, unclean. And therefore, if you're unclean, you couldn't do what? You couldn't go into the temple to worship God. In fact, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, even if you try to keep them perfectly, even the high priest, it says, there was a sacrifice for the high priest for the iniquity of his unholy things. And he tried to keep the gazillion laws perfectly. But even the high priest, after all that effort, had to also have a sacrifice, had bloodshed for him. What Paul is saying is that the cultural aspects of the Old Testament law have been fulfilled. And what Paul is also saying is that the moral aspects of the Old Testament law, they have also been fulfilled. In Jesus, the moral law was given to us In order for us to be separate ethically, the cultural law was given to us, the ceremonial law, which there are gazillions of them, right, you can think about them. Don't eat pork, you're unclean if you have certain um, natural um, rhythms of life. There's a gazillion of them. The moral law was meant to separate you ethically. The ceremonial law was meant to set you apart culturally. And the ceremonial law was given in order to help Israel recognize that as much as they tried to be separate from the world, they could not separate themselves from their own hearts. And that even with their best effort, they still had to have a sacrifice for them in the end. And the, the ceremonial law was kind, of a, um, was kind of a training wheels for the people of God to help teach them how to be separate from the world, in the world but not of it, so that when they had marriages, they would marry of their kind. When they had business dealings, they would do business dealings with those of their kind. And the ceremonial law passed away or did it when Christ came? The moral law, we sometimes say, well, moral law stands. You need the moral law, but you don't need the ceremonial law. No, no. Listen to me very carefully. You need the principle of all of the law in the Old Testament. The principle of the law in the Old Testament, however you want to divide it, civil, ceremonial, moral, was to get an honest heart in you and in me. And it was to say that no matter how hard you strive to fulfill the law of the Old Testament, you will still fall short. And in the end, there still has to be a blood sacrifice for you. And what Paul is saying is to these false brothers, stop using the law as a means to commend yourself to him. The same can be said of the ceremonial law, please hear me, and the moral law, by the way. Both can be used as ways to commend yourself to God. And Paul is saying, cannot use the law in that way because the principle of the law was to get an honest heart in you. And therefore, our call is to honor the principle of the law. So how do you honor the principle of the moral law? Well, you comply with it as Christians. You do what it says to do, but you don't comply with the principle of or the ceremonial law. Why? Because you're not culturally set apart from anyone else anymore. You can be born in the Bronx or Brookside or Bangkok. You can have African Christianity and you can have American Christianity. They look drastically different. You can look and smell. You eat different foods. The gospel goes across the globe. It is not culturally bound. It's just so important for us to recognize. And because it's not culturally bound, it's centered upon what? It is centered upon the perfect, finished work of Jesus. But we tend to add things to that message in order for us to subtly over time begin to think, not in terms of us growing in holiness, but we begin to think that God will love us more if we Jesus plus this and I don't know what it is for you but let's pick on our church for a second can we when you go visit other churches this is one of the reasons you know or one of the ways you know if this is true of you when you go to other churches immediately what do you think oof, oof. they don't do it like we do we are right and they're wrong what is it for you like in a youth group this morning, we were talking about it, and somebody brought up the example of like, we bring our kids in. If they're five and older, they're in the worship service with us. That is odd and strange to do. Most churches don't do that. But that's not a sin issue, it's a preference. Just a preference. We want our children to be in, to hear the gospel, to actually help us as parents talk about the gospel with our kids. But it's not a sin issue, it's a preference. Why do we do the order of worship the way that we do? We try to do it in a way that Scripture calls us to do it. But do you have to have a confession of No, we don't have a confession. No, we do it. Why? Because we think it is the easiest and best way to get an honest heart in you over time. And that the rhythm of that practice actually helps you recognize your need for the gospel better and better and better. So when you go to visit other churches and you see that they don't do, the way, do things the way we do, what is your initial reaction Is your initial reaction, oh, let's learn from how they do this beautifully and see how the gospel is so central? Or or is your first reaction, I wish they did it like we did? Every community, every culture, and this is so true of the church in general, and it's certainly true of us. We have to repent of our personal sins and of our corporate sins. When you become a Christian in this church, what is it over time as you become a member that you feel like you have to do in order to be accepted in this church? If you can answer a question with a specific, we got real problems in our hands and we need to repent as a community. And we as elders need to help see those things and help us to grow. For the ancient church, it was circumcision that marked people off. What is it for you? Listening to NPR, liking this kind of art, preferring this kind of music, dressing a certain way, looking a certain way. We want nothing in this church to be an obstacle for people, no matter how different they may be, from seeing the gospel of grace. That is what binds us together. And the problem is that God, we think that God judges based on partiality, but He doesn't. He freely offers to us grace, the finished work of his son, Jesus. Because can you imagine, like, if you, if you doubt whether God loves you, like, can't you see how much he loves you in this passage? I mean, think about if, if they hadn't settled this issue. There would be two Christianities. There would be a Christianity that was ensconced in a culture that believed that circumcision or keeping the law was still the only way to follow Jesus, the only way to become a Christian, to be accepted by God, and there'd be a Christianity that believed that Nothing can commend you to God but by faith alone. And you would know the difference because they both came from the apostles. But Paul, Peter, and John get together, and they say, no, the gospel is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is how you are accepted. Did you see Charlie's face whenever I baptized him? It was so sweet. Did he have any idea what was happening to him? Did he do anything? No. It is a picture of your salvation. You were oblivious to what the Holy Spirit was doing in you, but he opened your heart to believe. And then when you heard the gospel, oh, you ran to it. Galatians is interested in not your doing, but your being. It is asking the question of your status before God, something that can never be lost because it was given to you by him. You can do nothing to lose it. We tend to think about our status before God in terms of doing. And Paul says, no, you must think of it in terms of being. In fact, you can't really speak peace into your heart until you begin to believe that your identity, your status is fixed firmly in the heavens. There's an old, old sermon written in the 18th century by a guy named George Whitfield, and this is is what Whitfield said. Before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, but likewise for the sins of your best duties and performances. You hear that? Not only your outward sins, but also your righteousnesses keep you from God. When a poor soul is awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then the poor creature being born under the covenant of works flies directly to a covenant of works again. And as Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and to his performances to hide himself from God again and goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. He says, the Christian will say, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do all that I can. And then certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy on me. But before you can speak peace to your heart, Whitfield says, you must be brought to see that all your duties, all your righteousness are as far from commanding you to God that he will see them as filthy rags. Our best duties are as so many of our splendid sins. Before you can speak peace to your heart, there must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. So culturally, we can ask ourselves: are there things in our church that we assume people must do in order for them to feel like God loves them more? If there is, we need to repent of that. It is Christ alone, his finished work for us alone that defines us as a people. But how about for you? Addition sometimes comes by subtraction. Like, what, what are the, like, let's apply this. Circumcision seems kind of remote to us, but think about the things in your life that you know are wrong, but you cannot keep from doing them. Like, think about your work. Some of you work so many hours, and you see it on your wife's face that she needs you at home. You see it in your children's eyes, Like they don't know the last time that they were just able to connect with you. And yet you know it's wrong to work as much as you do, but you can't help it. And you say to yourself, they need me. Or pornography. You know it's wrong. But you use it as a form of self-rescue. And you go back to it again, and you know it's wrong. And you can't help it, but you go back to it. You can't stop doing it. Why? Because you are using it as a way to escape. That is a form of self-rescue. That's your circumcision. That's your Jesus plus. Or your anger. You know you're having a problem with your anger. And when it flares up again, you know that it's wrong, but it just comes out. and you get angry because you don't know how to deal with it, and you blow up again, you know what's wrong. What are those things that you know are wrong, but you keep doing them because you're using them as a way of escape? You may not think of them in terms of ways of escape, but that is what they are. There are pathways of joy for you. Anything but Jesus becomes a pathway of joy for you And it becomes an idol of your heart. It becomes the Jesus Plus. Uh, One conference speaker um, put it like this. With our mouths, we say Christ alone makes me acceptable. But in our hearts, we say it's Christ and financial freedom. It's Christ and this peer group. It's Christ and some externality. But anything other than Jesus will be a slave master that will strangle you, that will drive you into the ground, that will leave you for dead. Anything else that you use to make you acceptable for God will become a slave master. Now, is your dream of freedom becoming a nightmare? Because you have added to the gospel, Jesus plus this makes me commendable before God. And there's not just one thing in your heart if you're like me. There are dozens of things. At the very end of this passage, after they get together and they do not circumcise Titus, they say, circumcision is not required to commend yourself to God. It is not a means of justification if we're to be circumcised, fine, be circumcised. But don't do it because that's the right way to do it. Do it because it's cultural. It's fine to be circumcised. Paul says to the circumcised to became circumcised. To the uncircumcised to become uncircumcised. Paul, it's, it's a cultural issue. It's not a sin issue unless you're using it to commend you to God. Do you see the key difference there? Anything can become that way. And as we go throughout Tulsa, the more and more we love being together as a church. Oh, please watch out that you are not letting the cultural aptitudes of our community become how you define yourself before God. Oh, I go to a PCA church. Who cares? It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus plus something equals nothing. Now, at the very end of this um, portion of scripture that I read, there's this very, very interesting line in verse 10, it says, only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. Isn't that interesting? Part of the proclamation of the gospel for Paul and for Peter and for James and for John was what? Was taking care of the poor. Now, this isn't social gospel. This is the gospel of Galatians chapter 2. Why did he say that? Because when you are so humbled by the finished work of Jesus for you, you stop looking down your nose at other people because it's not based upon your performance anymore. If you're basing your status before God on your performance, then you will have to look down your nose at other people. You'll have to because you have to have some way of measuring yourself, don't you? That means you're putting some people down and you're lifting yourself up. So one diagnostic question is, do you love those who are poor? Or is your money your idol? Are you generous with the way you live your life? Or do you work your schedule so much so that you're only and always with people who are just like you? There's nothing wrong with, being with people who are like you. There's nothing wrong at all, except if you're using that as a way to measure your identity. Then it becomes a problem. Peter, John, and Paul give Paul this admonition before he leaves, only remember the poor. That's the very thing I long to do. Why? Because when the gospel so humbles you that only Jesus lifts up your head as he sings his love over you, it makes you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to everyone. It makes you want to be generous. It makes the church want to ask very important social questions about how they can extend the gospel by meeting real physical needs for people in our own community. Are we doing that? One challenge for the community groups as you guys begin to meet is to think about how are you reaching out to people in Owasso? Are you just overshadowed by Christianity or has it penetrated you? Has the gospel gone in? And if it's gone in, it should move you out to Owasso and Tulsa and North Tulsa, right in our backyard and Skytook and Sperry and Claremore and Owasso and everywhere to care for those who need your gifts, and your resources? Or do you say it's mine? Be careful. Don't add. Freedom is much easier to proclaim than to possess. Is your dream becoming a nightmare? What are you adding to commend yourself to God? What is it that you cannot stop doing that you know is wrong. Hmm? Don't add these things to giving yourself to Jesus. You should stop doing those things that are wrong, not because God is going to love you more because you stop doing those things, but because he accepts you and he has equipped you to become his child because you are, and he sings over you, and he wants your life to come in line with his Not by keeping the ceremonial law, but by seeing that Jesus was the fulfillment of that ceremonial law. And not by keeping the moral law to get God to love you more, but by keeping the moral law in order to get an honest heart in you. To know that it is only through repentance again and again in Jesus, through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, that you find that the freedom that you so ardently long for becomes yours. Free at last, free at last. By the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Thank God Almighty. Amen. We are free at last. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us as a community to add nothing to the gospel to commend us to you. We can add nothing. It is your finished work on the cross, Lord Christ, and in your glorious resurrection. And in your intercession at the Father's right hand right now, that is our only means of salvation. And we pray, I pray that anyone in this room, Father, who doesn't trust fully in you, who hasn't repented of their sins and of their righteousnesses that they use to commend themselves to you, that they would find themselves at the foot of the cross. Because Jesus, you took upon yourself all of our sins our bad deeds and our good deeds that we use to coerce you to love us. And now, Father, you've set us free. Help us as a church not to turn the gospel into a nightmare of performance. Help us to become your hands and feet in Owasso to the world by caring for the poor because you have so transformed our heart and set us free to do those things that are radical. Because we are yours. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to run in repentance and faith back to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.